Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hey, CRM Archaeology Podcast listeners. Chris Webster here. Not only am I the host of this show, one of the hosts of this show, but I'm also the founder of the Archaeology Podcast Network. And we made a decision for various reasons not to release new episodes on any of our feeds in the Archaeology Podcast Network for the month of October 2022. And instead, we're actually promoting episodes of other episodes from other shows on the APN so you can see what else we have going on. The episode you're going to hear today is from the Archaeology Show, episode 137, and it's with a friend of mine, Jason Cooper, who is a Washington, state of Washington, DOT archaeologist, but at the time, he was working for another company, the time of what we're going to talk about, when we were doing a CRM project for a highway, or a really a road alteration, so to speak, in northwestern Washington state, and we found basically a 9,000-year-old Olcott site, <laughs> and he came and visited Rachel and I, when we were at a campground up in that area with our RV uh, a couple of years ago and talked to us about that site and then what came of it. So I think this is a very good show for this audience just to show you what can come of a really cool CRM project. And with that, here's the show. You're listening to The Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 137. On today's show, we talk to Washdot archaeologist Jason Cooper about the Olcott, a nine to eleven thousand year old stone tool tradition in Western Washington. Let's dig a little deeper. Welcome to the Archaeology Show, Rachel. How's it going? Pretty good. All right. So as you guys know, we are on the road, and uh, again, we're recording outside as a car trolls slowly by me on the gravel right now. So also, we are in northwestern Washington State right now, and there is an active Navy base, the one I was actually stationed at 25 years ago, and actually from like 1994, I think, to 99. I was going to say, is that a little yeah, 25 or years 97. ago? 97. Maybe. That's 25 years ago. Get off me. Anyway, so I was stationed there, and there's planes literally landing and flying overhead all the time. Yeah, we're like right in the landing path or whatever, so lots of noise here, but whatever. Lots of noise, but we'll deal with it. We just wanted to call that out uh, because I won't be able to cut all that out in the recording, so. But we are here, and it's super cool because a friend of ours was able to drive up from the Seattle area, somebody we worked with back in 2008. Nine, yeah, something yeah. like that. We've been we've been friends ever since, and they've been working on a, a publication for the project that we came up here to to work on for. So, Jason Cooper, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah. So you are an archaeologist now. Uh, you weren't then, but now you're an archaeologist with Washington DOT. Correct. And you are the president, Mr. President, of the Association for Washington Archaeology. Yes, thank you very much. So we are in the midst of royalty right now, <laughs> i got to say. Wait, yeah. when are presidents royalty? I don't, well, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so why don't you just tell us, before we get into the site at Granite Falls, Washington, that we worked on and learning all about the Olcott, uh, why don't you tell us a little about your archaeological career and how you came to this place? Well, thanks for having me, Chris and Rachel, uh, today at your uh, lovely uh, setup here. <laughs> this is uh, this is quite fantastic. Yeah, no, I'm uh, currently the cultural resources specialist for Washington State Department of Transportation's Northwest Region, and mm-hmm. that covers pretty much Tacoma north to the Canadian border, Cascade Crest down to the Puget Sound. So I've got a, a pretty good territory that I cover for DOT, uh, looking at roadways and and primarily fish passages right now. That's, mm-hmm. that's primarily what I'm doing as the cultural resources specialist is working on fish passages and delivering that, which is part of a tribal injunction against the state. That's a, that's a different story. But yeah. um, no, I've been with the DOT for four years now, come up, coming up on five in February, and I've been doing cultural resources here in Washington State for about 20 years now. Wow. There you go. 
kind of bounced around between the mom and pop shops to medium size firms to a large A&E firm, uh, AMEC, the one that we did uh, the Granite Falls project on back mm-hmm. in the late uh, 2000s, early 2010s, teens. I've been doing archaeology my entire life since uh, early undergraduate days mm-hmm. at San Diego State University. Mm-hmm. Went to uh, University of Nevada, Las Vegas, the esteemed UNLV uh, <laughs> program uh, in the mid '90s, and and broke my teeth on archaeology of the Eastern Mediterranean Basin. Nice. And um, my area emphasis has always been stone tools, mm-hmm. kind of emerging complexity in uh, early Stone Age societies is yeah. kind of where mm-hmm. I find my uh, most interest in archaeology. Yeah, and like super randomly you were telling us that you spent some time in basically the same area that we just did a project for two months in Northern Nevada, right? Yes, so, yes, yeah. I had random overlap. Yeah, after I graduated from San Diego State and before I started at UNLV, I, I landed a gig out of the, the Mountain City Ranger District yeah. of yeah. the Humboldt-Tyobi National Forest mm-hmm. and working under Fred Frampton and Roger Johnson mm-hmm. uh, up that way and lived in a double wide for, for about eight months, <laughs> nine months up there. As uh, you do up there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. It's a, it's a you know, great We lived corner. in a single wide when we were there. <laughs> Our RV. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's a beautiful you know, corner of, of Nevada. Uh, got to know Elko very well. And yeah, some of the coldest uh, November days I've ever experienced in my life there in the, the bottoms of the wild horse. Yep. 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 For sure. Yeah, it's kind of interesting, too. I just put this together, actually. You did some work in Jordan, and my co-host for the Archaeotech podcast, who actually just retired from his other job and came to work with us down in Nevada, got his PhD working out in that area, Petra and the surrounding area. And he's... Man, I should get both of you guys on a podcast because you guys are just geek out over that stuff. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. yeah the Hashemite <laughs> Kingdom of Jordan is a very special place uh, yeah. in my heart. Uh, first time I was there was 1993, and the last time was 2009. So, I mean, I, yeah. I had you know quite a run of, of field projects uh, mm-hmm. over there, uh, ranging from early Paleolithic all the way through the late Neolithic. Yeah, cool. I think he worked out there in the mid to late 90s. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So. Probably overlapped. I mean, there's yeah. there's a good chance because most of those programs were run through the American Center of Oriental Research. Yeah. Based mm-hmm. in Amman. Yeah. And if you were doing work there, you were doing work through ACOR. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. You've got a long history there. Let's talk about the Granite Falls project. So let's set the set the stage for where this is first uh, in in the Puget Sound area and and kind of what the what the early environment would have looked like. Sure. Granite Falls is, uh, was and still is a bedroom community of, of Seattle in Snohomish County, which is north of, of Seattle. And it's situated along a state route that was built in the, essentially following a, an old a mountain trail, railroad up, mm-hmm. to the, up to Monte Cristo. Monte Cristo is a kind of a legendary railroad camp uh, that was mm-hmm. extracting silver and other heavy metals up you know up in the cascade foothills you know in the mm-hmm. late uh, 19th century and the early 20th century and, uh, and i'm sure all that was built on old native american trails and pathways yes <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah of course very much so <laughs> but no so the, the you know all the traffic went through downtown Granite Falls, and, and it was definitely a, a, a safety issue for having big trucks come through the sleepy little bedroom community mm-hmm. of Granite Falls. And so Snohomish County needed to divert traffic around town. And so it was, you know, a typical project through Public Works. And, and I'll give credit to, to Crilly Ritz, who's still still there working hard for the county as one yep. of the most diligent planners that the county has ever seen. And he, he was one of the few individuals that took the project from inception to to completion. So uh, I always give props to Curly when I talk about uh, Granite Falls. Sometimes we'll, we also call it a GAFAR, the Granite Falls Alternate Route. Mm-hmm. Oh, so acronym right. GAFAR. So that's kind mm-hmm. of a lot of the kind of the slang. If, if I drop a GAFAR, <laughs> that, that's what we're talking about. But currently now, I mean, it, the name of the road is called Quarry Road. Mm-hmm. And essentially the bypass now takes traffic through a couple of roundabouts around town and services, you know, large um, mining trucks. There's, yeah. you know, it's still an active hallway for, for the mining and, and logging that's happening up along Mountain Loop Highway and, and kind of heading up. That, that drainage of the Stillaguamish River, right. uh, where we're situated. 
yeah, so the county came up with the route, the alternate route. There were early cultural resource surveys done on the project area mm-hmm. by Boaz. Phil Letourneau was the project director on that way back when for Boaz and was responsible for peppering the uh, project's area potential effect with shovel test probes, hundreds of them, and identified several hotspots along this proposed route. Mm-hmm. And, and for you theory aficionados, Boaz is an acronym for the company that was out here, not the Boaz, <laughs> like Franz Boaz. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I mean, it's kind of an homage. The uh, The owner of the company, Estrita Blunkes Onat, uh-huh. uh, took uh, several letters of her name and, and purposely spelled that? And, spe- and purposely oh, spelled it to, to, know that. To, to link up with <laughs> That's funny. Franz Boaz. Oh, That's it. awesome. I love it. I love it. So... I actually, we talked about actually having you on the CRM Archaeology podcast, another one that I've hosted in our longest running show on the APN, to really kind of get into the nitty gritty of how this worked from a from a business perspective, let's say, now working with the agency and, and other things. But for now, let's talk about the Olcott. So this is, this is identified as an Olcott site. But before we get to that and how that determination was made and why this went to full-scale excavation, let's talk a little bit about what we knew about the Olcott before this. Who were the Olcott and, and how do we know about them before this? Sure. Yeah, no, the, the Olcott consists of a, in my opinion, a very old Stone Age culture and, and most likely one of the first Stone Age cultures to move into Western Washington, Puget Sound, mm-hmm. as the glaciers retreated post late glacial maximum. So yeah. so post, you know, in this part of the state, uh, the glaciers receded past uh, the Granite Falls area 16,000, 13,000, 12,000 years ago mm-hmm. as as it kind of the ice blocked up and freed up and kind of kept moving to the north. That's essentially when this area became accessible mm-hmm. to folks that were primarily coastal driven individuals and riverine folks that were coming down following following the shores but also kind of working their way into the Puget Sound as we yep. know it today or the Salish Sea as we like to call it now and uh, working their way up the river drainages you know as you know as they came into it and so Granite Falls situation on the landscape is uh, you know up at the headwaters of the confluence of the north and south forks of the Stillaguamish. And the, the Stillaguamish River drains into the Puget Sound through the Skagit River. And so this is, you know, a very rich uh, estuary and attractive for for natural resources and, and game. And so kind of following natural corridors, uh, folks worked their way up um, the Stillaguamish and exploited a very abundant raw material. Hmm. And so this is this is kind of a key component of the Olcott is their stone tools. And, and obviously this is only one facet of their culture. That's the facet that has survived in the archaeological record sure. being the stone tools. Obviously everything else that, you know, the, all the perishables have, have, have lost to the, the ages of time. Mm-hmm. But we do have the record of their stone tools. And the stone tools tell of a very complex lithic strategy and targeting a particular type of stone tool along the Stillaguamish that, through our research, has shown to be incredibly sturdy, mm. incre- incredibly durable, and was successful in doing what they wanted to do, cut kill and be useful in their day-to-day life. So okay. so essentially the Olcott's is a kind of a, a, a term that was coined in the 1960s by a regional archaeologist, Robert Butler, and kind of based on the current, the understanding then at the time of, you know, kind of a cascade style point, a leaf shape style point. Mm-hmm. And you just see it time and time again, the, the site's tend to uh, lump around uh, the river valleys, the existing river valleys, and, and away from the shore. So for me, this kind of shows that, yes, these folks are moving in along the coastline and then working their way up the river valleys. Nice. So was there a particular type of material that they're using for these lithic tools, consistent? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, the the kind of the common terminology for it is, you know, everyone just calls it a basalt. And so Mm -hmm. it looks like a basalt Mm -hmm. type of material to be a little bit more generic and scientific. uh, The, the material is called a crypto volcanic rock, a CVR. And so that's just kind of a, a catch all for dark fine grain basalty material without kind of using the basalt terminology. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. 
But through our work on the Granite Falls project, we were able to test the material, not only from the archaeological site, but then just kind of collecting material along the Stillaguamish to develop kind of a background information of what's the material the folks were using here mm-hmm. locally. And so the results came back, and I'm kind of drawing a blank on on what on what the, we're calling it now. It's a... Um, it's want to reference yeah, yeah, your, yeah. your tome? <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me, yes. Um, <laughs> no, you don't have to. <laughs> yeah. no, Rachel just handed me a, a copy of the University of Utah Press on Hunters of the Mid-Holocene Forest, uh, the old Cordilleran culture sites of Granite Falls, Washington. Yeah. It's a, it's a came out in November 2011, co-authored with, uh, with Jim Chatters and Philip Eterno. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes too. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you. And so essentially this report kind of, kind of covers the technical aspect of the material and the material shows it's just rich with heavy metals. And so that kind of plays with the strength of this particular cryptovolcanic rock is it's incredibly hard. Mm -hmm. And so it it resists bending and fracturing. And so that's kind of what you see in stone tool usage. And even during the manufacturing, right, is, you know, just broken tools, you know, it hits a bone and it breaks or one throw hits a stone and it breaks. Mm-hmm. This particular technology in making these long leaf points and thicker blades and and long knives matched with the the heavy metals inherent in this particular stone makes them ideal material for stone tools. And they were, I mean, hurdling these on spear tips at like what was remaining of the megafauna at the time, right? Exactly. So they needed yeah. something robust. To yeah. Just so this is the addle-addle type technology. So yeah. it's not and and spears as well. I mean, yeah. these, these are not just your yeah, definitely pre bow and arrow. This sure. one, we're not mm-hmm. dealing with with kind of uh, you know bird point types, small mm-hmm. little t- tiny guys. These are these are large robust yeah. tools. Nice, nice, and. This being a volcanic region, the Cascade Range, there's volcanoes within sight of us right here for we're in a cloudy day. Uh, Mount St. Helens, which most people have heard of, is not that far away, covered the Syrian ash just back in 1980. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it's happened frequently out here. But that must be true that there's other types of materials. I don't know how much obsidian sourcing there is up here or even even chert, your crystal, crystalline silicates. Were they just... Not robust enough, and so you don't see the Olcott assemblage in that material? The, there are sources of obsidian in the Cascades uh, further south, okay. um, So and also on the east side, uh, closer to kind of the, the Yakima mm-hmm. basin on the east side of the state. There are, there are naturally occurring cryptocrystalline silicate CCS material in the creeks and, and rivers here as well. Those are, are are visible in the archaeological record several thousand years later, and and you you do also see it mixed in to a certain degree, but sure. primarily it's this kind of cryptovolcanic rock yeah. that the Olcott folks are using because they're in, in my in my opinion that they're using a, a stone tool technology that's based on core and blade, which is mm-hmm. which is you can see come down through the Aleutians, comes down through British Columbia the coast, and so yeah. this is kind of a a technology that 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 was brought to North America from the land bridge in, in my side, you know, gotcha. kind of my academic opinion. I, I know that there's different theories on, on where folks are coming from, but sure. uh, this is my, my feeling, the direction that they're coming with yeah. this particular technology of stone tool manufacturing. Okay. Well, let's take a break and come back and keep talking to Mr. Jason Cooper about the old cot and get a little bit more into what made the Granite Falls site an old cot site on the other side. Back in a minute. <laughs> Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 137, and we are talking to Jason Cooper, currently of the Washington Department of Transportation. He's the the guy on the other side of the coin now. But we're talking about a project when he was on the CRM side. Now he's the now he's the agency guy we all complain about. So there you go. But, uh, <laughs> so we're not going to really get into the history. I'd like to do this on the CRM podcast, but. What was found over the investigations that were done prior to this phase three? We call we call like full scale block excavations phase three sometimes, but I've noted before that, and, and Tom King has told me before online that uh, it's not called phase three everywhere. So we'll say like full scale block excavation is just the, the typical archaeological thing that you see where there's lots of holes in the ground and <laughs> equipment. Just so Tom King doesn't come uh, and hunt you down online. I know he will. Tom, he will. Tom, he will. Tom, Tom, this is for you. So anyway. <laughs> 
so we're talking about a full-scale block excavation. You don't usually get to this point unless something significant was found to lead you to believe that there was other stuff here, right? So what was found prior to this that said, this site's special, we need to do some more work? Well, there's two components to, to that, to, to in addition to having a rich archaeological assemblage that was identified during you know the, the phase one, mm-hmm. the, the identification and evaluation phase versus the second phase, the testing, which also took place. But really to get to the data recovery, you need you need something else. And it's the avoidance aspect mm. of Section 106 consultation. Right. They couldn't avoid these sites. These sites were identified. There's there's hundreds of site, similar sites in this portion of Snohomish County. Mm-hmm. And it's a constant problem for developers. And I say problem because, you know, the, these folks, you know, are, are, are trying to, you know, build whatever they want to build. And, they, <laughs> you know, they have to run through the, the hoops of, yeah. of managing with significant archaeological sites. In this case, Snohomish County, working with uh, the DOT, came up with a corridor. They were limited in where they could build the roundabouts in regards to the state routes and tying in again, uh, avoiding downtown Granite Falls. So there was a very limited corridor where they can build. Mm -hmm. And so after the testing, sites were found. They did a little retooling to uh, avoid some things, but there's two areas that they couldn't. Mm-hmm. And and those are the two areas that we primarily focused our phase three data recovery excavations. And that's where uh, you and Rachel came on board with AMEC and, and took part in those excavations for uh, several months there, kind of spanning yeah. late 2008 and early 2009. Right the, the coldest de- winter that I have ever experienced. <laughs> right. And I'm, I'm born and raised in Washington, and I don't think I've ever seen that much snow here in one season. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that was ridiculous. It was, it, it, very much so. It was insane. And so, and so the, the western of the two roundabouts was near site 45 SN28. 45 is the state code for the state of Washington. Mm-hmm. SN is Snohomish, Washington. Site 28. So this it's a fairly low number site. This yeah. was originally recorded in the 1970s when you had a researcher at the University of Washington that was going around and uh, writing his thesis essentially on mm-hmm. the Alcott complex and sites. And so he was investigating locations and, and this is when this site was originally recorded. So it wasn't necessarily a new site versus the other one that we worked at, which was near the Beavers house where the Beavers are a great family and, and mm-hmm. they were very accommodating to, to our project. That one was SN 303. And so that, and was a warm place to sit sometimes on breaks. Yes. yes. We really appreciated that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Very much so. So, yeah, so it was the avoidance aspect that the, the county and the DOT couldn't avoid these sites. And so yeah. the project was going to go through here. And so in order, in, so if there was no avoidance, then it's, it's mitigate through excavate, as I say. Mm-hmm. And so we... We excavated the, the sites. We we tested them. We opened up hundreds of, of square meters uh, of sediment mm-hmm. and of particular interest for these sites. These sites are fairly shallow. We're not we're not talking like deep meters and meters of excavation. Right. It's it's less than a meter usually. The these sites are sitting anywhere between thirty to sixty centimeters mm-hmm. below the surface, and so yeah. it's really shallow mm-hmm. for yeah. how old these sites are. And these sites are speaking of dates, you know, are in the eight thousand year old. Category. So mm-hmm. we're we're talking early Holocene, mm-hmm. um, and they kind of fall into the kind of the early archaic period. I know archaic is not necessarily the term that we use today in sure. regards to, to to early prehistoric pre-contact cultures. Prehistoric is also on the outs. We got to mm-hmm. be careful about using <laughs> that terminology. But right. this particular pre-contact culture dates from ten thousand years ago all the way up to almost five thousand years ago mm-hmm. with some changes, but again, we're only looking at the stone tools and the changes in the stone tools over those 5,000 years was not that significant. Mm. It, was, it primarily stayed the same throughout the course, kind of focusing in on on this type of material, this, this Hornsfeld, which is a, a cryptovolcanic rock. I just looked that up in... In, uh, <laughs> in your book? In the press, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Had to make sure of that, a Hornsfeld. Good and, thing that guy wrote that thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still wondering, you know, just going back real quick, uh, well, and first off, the number, 45SN28, and the other one was... 303. 303. The 28 is really cool to me. I don't want to gloss over that because that's the Smithsonian trinomial system that they came up with back in, I think, during the uh, during the days of the... What was it called? Oh, it's back in the 30s. Uh, anyway, they came up with a system to to the Smithsonian did to catalog sites because they were the only one cataloging sites in different areas. The river basin surveys, I think it was. So they did that back in the East Coast, Midwest, and then other states started just adopting that system and that methodology. And I don't know when Washington did, but 
28 is the 28th consecutive site that was found and at least cataloged with the state in Snohomish County. So that's always really cool. You yeah, know, when you I get those low numbers, you're yeah. always kind of excited because like, you know, these sites were found in yeah. the early days in the 40s and 50s, you know, mm-hmm. by some of the early researchers. Yeah. Like I'll never forget when one of the first projects that we met on, Rachel and I, was we called it 1MD because it was the, it was, that was its designation because it was actually technically whatever Florida's number is, MD1. It was the <laughs> first site found in Miami-Dade County ever. <laughs> and that was just super cool to, to see that. So anyway, so you talked about one of the reasons why we had to excavate here was because of they couldn't avoid it, right? Now, there's plenty of sites that we determined that are not eligible for listing on the National Register of Historic Places that, you know, highway projects and other development projects do just simply mow right th- right over the top of because they've been ter- determined to not be significant in some way or another. So they couldn't avoid this, but also they realized that they should avoid this, but they couldn't, so we had to dig it up. So what was found here in the early excavations that led to just not having bulldozers go right over the top of it? It was the sheer density of lithic material in the shovel test probes that that caught folks' eyes. And so it wasn't just a a projectile point here, a biface fragment here. It was hundreds Mm -hmm. of of flakes, hundreds of of diagnostic stone tools that Mm -hmm. were coming up in limited probing, you know, that were Mm -hmm. spaced every 30 meters. And so phase one, 30 meters, 100 feet apart, we're digging holes and we're finding things. Yeah. Yeah. And then so we find something and then we narrow that that you know the dimensions, you know, cut it in half. We'll keep cutting it in half and we just kind of find the the hot spots, right? Yeah. Kind of just the, you know, classic site delineation uh, through shovel test probing um, is what kind of caught the eye. But I mean it's more than that. I mean it's, you know, the 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 lithic density stone tool culture, it's a fairly common thing here in Western Washington. I, I think a couple things that are unique here is that we had we had a willing participant with Snohomish County working with the DOT at the time and also, you know, the, the, the consultation with the five or six Native American tribes, you know, closely at hand from, from step one on this project. So it's, it's the combination of, of savvy planners working with cultural resource specialists with the participation of the local tribes, including the Stiligawamish, the Snoqualmie, the Duwamish, the Tulalips. These were all active participants in this project. And it was through their consultations that that kind of allowed the project to move forward. And and the case was made that this is a very important route to, you know, to promote safety within downtown Granite Falls because it was mm-hmm. a it was dangerous to walk downtown Granite Falls with all these big haul trucks mm-hmm. cutting through this kind of old sleepy logging town. Sure. So the, the will was there. The evidence showed that there were significant sites along the route and you know the consultations with the tribes were were productive in the sense that you know we weren't going to get shut down. Uh, there weren't any indications that there were going to be human remains or burials associated. Mm-hmm. Very rarely do you see human remains burials in this old of deposits here in Western Washington due to the acidic forest soils that just tear through yeah. organics right. and, mm-hmm. and, and bone material. And I mean, and that's the one thing, I mean, you know, you look at our, you know, 16,000 pieces of, of lithics that we excavated over the, the eight months or so we had that three <laughs> pieces of bone, <laughs> three pieces of faunal material, wow. yeah. which were, we were able to identify them, uh, uh, a beaver and a and a and another small varmint, mm-hmm. but uh, so I mean that's it, just you know astronomical sixteen thousand stone tools, but only three pieces of fauna, no organics at all, and no other organics. Crazy. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. You, you mentioned in the publication too. Speaking of the acidic soils. And not only that, but the um, another word that we use commonly in like forested environments is bioturbation, and you know that's when tree roots dig down real deep. They don't care about old ex- old artifacts underneath <laughs> there. They're just going to get down and move stuff around. So you've got tree roots moving things around. You've got acidic soil destroying things. So it's a really turbulent archaeological environment underneath. So. I read that there wasn't any evidence uh, directly or or typically in this area, there isn't any evidence of other living features like hearths and, you know, maybe even pits for um, like post holes or anything like that. Did we find, I'm asking because it was like 12 years ago, I didn't write the book, but did we find anything that that was anything feature-like that we could see? Yeah, we we had a couple of of fire uh, uh, modified rock features. And so that was one of the aspects of, of this report, which is kind of unique, is that we did collect and look at all the fire modified rock, mm-hmm. and we were able to separate the fire, mo- the FMR as we call it, uh, from uh, stone boiling rocks, rocks that were used in the cooking process, oh, yeah. versus rocks that were used in the 
kind of the the heating cooking food process. Mm-hmm. And so those are two different fire mechanics: boiling rocks, you know, putting hot rocks into a basket full of water to boil it. Yeah, mm-hmm. the rocks look differently than if you have a rock that's been cracked within a within a hearth, within sure. a, a campfire. Oh, interesting. I've I've never thought about that before, but so. A rock that was put into a into water to boil it is it just not cracked like it is if it were in a hearth? Correct. Or? Yeah, okay. it, it it kind of fractures differently oh. than if it's like direct heat. So I mean, obviously, you're still you're heating the rock before you put it into the water to boil it. Sure. Mm-hmm. But it's 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 different fire dynamics. You know, from the hot the, the hot to the cold cooling mm-hmm. will exfoliate it differently than if it was just a, a complete hot rock that just hmm. cracks and and begins to crumble within a campfire. Oh. And so that's something that, that we identified early on is kind of th- these are potential boiling rocks. These are are, are hearth rocks. And, and we have one hearth here that was relatively intact uh, below the plow line in that 30 to 60 centimeter below surface zone, uh, rich with other artifacts that we were able to pull organic residues off. And it, it shows that the, the folks here at this time were processing acorns. Yeah. And so, you know, kind of looking at, you know, the the uh, FTIR, the four air transform, uh, kind of the black box uh, analysis where you were able to take the greasy residue off of stone tools and FMR and match it against a baseline of other kind of scientific samples. And that's what that's what our black box tells okay. us is that acorns are being processed up here 8,000 years ago Jeez. where there's not very many acorns today. Yeah. True. Yeah. Much cool. different environment in the post-glacial environment, right? Very much so. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Was there any other evidence of anything like the the paleo-ecological environment, I guess. Yeah, and that, again, so that was another aspect, and that's something that uh, uh, Dr. Jim Chatters uh, brought to the table was our uh, exploration of uh, several bogs in the area which provide mm-hmm. the paleo-ecological data nice. back 12,000 years. And wow. the cores that we took from what we termed Logan Bog, uh, Logan being the, the the name of the landowner that settled that area first. Gotcha. So uh, and now it's essentially it's a, it's a wash dot overflow stormwater mm-hmm. facility, but it has uh, bog sediments that go down hundreds of feet. And so we were able wow. to core and get a, a paleontological, paleoecological record for the last 12,000 years of Western Washington. And what we're seeing in that are early on were fires, you know, kind of yeah. like the, the environment building up for a few thousand years and then fire deposits of charcoal. And so- mm-hmm. and That's so like we, what's happening now in California. Yeah, yeah. we're seeing yeah. it time and time again. So <laughs> it, it was definitely a more common feature you know, post-glacial west side of the western United States is kind of the classic altithermal, where it, it it's warmer. It was warmer nine thousand years ago here than it mm-hmm. is today, mm-hmm. and so it's kind of a, it was a warm side of the of the last glacial maximum essentially. And so you can yeah. see that in the records in Nevada and California. Uh, altithermal is a term that kind of dates back to the. 1960s, you know, desert ecology guys that originally right. identified it, right? Kind of all the pluvial systems in 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 Nevada, right? During mm-hmm. the glacial times, all those areas were filled, all those basins were 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 Pleistocene lakes, right? Mm-hmm. But then they showed all the lakes drained, and so and the temperature spiked right. to plus two degrees centigrade, which is which is kind of where we're heading right now, essentially. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. so that time was was characterized by a large west side uh, wildland fires. Wow. And uh, in addition, you know. Kind of seeing the the oak savanna in the areas now, which are covered, you know, by coniferous, you know, mm. trees now. I mean, it's kind of yeah. it's, it's a totally radically different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but something that's happened in that time frame, obviously, is the the development of the um, the watersheds and the, and the and the river systems that allowed the salmon to show up, right? Mm. I mean, because you, you know, post glacial, uh, denuded, uh, rocky plains, essentially turning into these oak savannas that turn into kind of the forest that we have today. Mm. You know, it takes thousands of years for these river systems to develop to allow the nutrients for the fish to show up. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And so and that's always a component. So it's not just the stone tools. They're they're exploiting the salmon. Yeah, they're here that, for a reason that, that were here yeah. for yeah. the last for, you know, essentially the, the, the length of the Holocene. Right. Sure. The last mm-hmm. 10,000 years. Mm-hmm. But again, all we're seeing is a stone tool record because right. that's what survives right. in in the dirt here. Mm-hmm. OK. All right. Well, with that, we will take our final break. And I want to come back on the other side and talk more specifically about the Olcott people and kind of what happened to them and that whole history. So we'll be back in just a minute. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 137. And we are wrapping up this discussion of the Olcott people with Jason Cooper. And I was kind of wondering, we were talking about this on the break a little bit about, you know, 
these two sites are relatively close to each other. In fact, we used to just walk back and forth between these as we were excavating them. There was a road in between them, and and uh, we would walk up the hill and, and go to the next one. But they weren't necessarily they're, – they're two separate sites. They weren't related to each other in time that closely that they were just using these simultaneously necessarily, right? Correct. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we're talking thousands of years of occupation for these sites, and um, the the two sites at the Beavers and the Triangle, the Triangle just being uh, an area between uh, the old uh, kind of county road network system that mm-hmm. left this little piece of, of real estate undeveloped between Inga Bretson and the former Jordan Road. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just a happenstance that this particular area was was persisted, uh, you know, between these That's county crazy. roads. Yeah. But you know, the, the difference in elevation is is about twenty to thirty feet, and so you know what we're looking at. When you look at and you strip it down to bare earth lidar, is you know these are d- different terraces above the Stillaguamish River, and yeah. so at different times, at different uh, flow regimes of the Stillaguamish, they could have been higher up on the upper terrace and then mm-hmm. on the lower terrace mm-hmm. at different times, and essentially these are habitation sites and tied to a highly mobile residential model where these folks are, are moving from station to station of exploiting the resources, collecting stone tools, hunting game, collecting berries, collecting acorns, apparently, yeah. in the Oak Savannah a scrub oak that we had there at the time uh, in the early Holocene. And, you know doing this for thousands of years. And so, I mean, this particular cultural tradition lasted for several thousand years and really unchanged until kind of the middle Holocene. And, you know, the middle Holocene to 2,500 years ago is, is, is really the, you know, where we start seeing kind of the today's of kind of ethnographic Native Americans. Yeah. So the, the traits that we see at contact in the 17th and the 18th centuries goes back 2,500 years. And so the time period between 2,500 years and 5,000, there was definitely more influence from, say, the eastern portion of Washington State on the east side of Oregon. You're seeing more stone tools from eastern Washington and Oregon, more obsidian showing up from Oregon especially. So you kind of see that the, the networks had expanded yeah. and horses had, had shown up on the scene You know, by 2,500 years ago. Bow and arrow, you know, kind of early technologies had worked their way from the plains you know, to the Snake River systems and to the Columbia River systems and eventually to the west side here mm-hmm. in Washington. But, you know, kind of based on, you know, the early habitation models, folks coming down the Pacific coast, working their ways into the Salish Sea region early on in the Holocene, but then interacting with folks coming from the east to west 5,000 years to, to present, essentially, is what is what we're seeing. Okay. Is, is the Olcott phase? Do we call it the Olcott phase? It's a phase. It's kind of more like a classic tradition okay. in archaeological terminology, but it's 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 coined the Olcott phase here. Is that like the only thing identified at that time period in the Puget Sound region, or were there other phases, so to speak, or traditions that were running in parallel? Yes, yes. The the yeah. kind of the, the early, uh, you know, kind of the Clovis model, but then right. we also have kind of the, the earlier phase and I'm, and I'm drawing a blank on the the terminology for it it is the kind of the the great western stem oh yeah oh yeah kind of phase which you see here in the western united states mm-hmm. yeah. so that's kind of post clovis but pre alcott it's kind of like a kind of mm-hmm. a term and and you do see some of that here but really i mean this was the the dominant stone culture post clovis and there's only a handful of clovis sites in in western Washington and in Washington State, you know, there's maybe five or six, mm. you know, and isolates. The most famous being in an apple orchard in Wenatchee huh. that was found wow. in the Ritchie Clovis site is mm-hmm. what that mm. one's called. Uh, but that's okay. just like an amazing cache of, of a half dozen large Lancelot Clovis points. Jeez. Uh, you just don't see that very yeah, much. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, uh, in regards to Olcott, it lasted for a long time and then it, it essentially just kind of phased out, dribbled out, mm-hmm. you know, into the middle and later Holocene where you know, the points got smaller, the material got more diverse. Well, and megafauna started to die off and the landscape started to change and animals yeah. got different too. So. Sure, yeah. And there was more reliance on on fish, you know, because you mm-hmm. know, the fish yeah. were here, yeah. but the fish weren't here in the great enough you know, densities. It wasn't sure. until the middle Holocene where you had, you know, the, the fish runs that were fully mm-hmm. established and were, were able to support a, a, a bigger demographic of, mm-hmm. of pre, pre-contact folks. Sure, sure. So how far, I guess, how far spread out is the Olcott tradition in this area that we know is definitively Olcott, right? Like, like we know without a doubt, 
what is the range of this phase? Sure. It stays pretty much on, on the western side of of Washington, kind of on the, yeah. the Salish Sea, Puget Sound side. But, but you do find leaf-shaped projectile points on the east side of the state, too, you know, mm. to, to a certain degree. You know, the, the technology to create long blades and turn those long blades into leaf-shaped projectile points you know, yeah. once you have it, it's, it's, it's a pretty simplistic way to reduce a stone and to make it an effective tool. Mm-hmm. But what I see, kind of Granite Falls is in the, the center, kind of the heartland of Alcott. You look at the overall site densities of Alcott sites in western Washington, and it seems the, the Granite Falls area, that part of Snohomish County, is the highest concentration of sites. Mm. And, and, and it's my belief that these early riverine coastal folks came into Puget Sound and found themselves in the Stillaguamish because they were protected on the mountainside because there's no natural pass up the Stillaguamish sure. into the Cascades. It's blocked off. It's not like Stevens Pass right. or Stampede Pass or some of the other southern passes where you have easy Pretty routes. rough mountains up there, too. Pretty rough mountains. <laughs> and so your backside is protected. You're not necessarily yeah. worried about folks coming from that backside. And you know you also have a hunting cul-de-sac. There essentially where animals are going to be moving up and down this corridor that, you know, sure they can get over the mountain, but you're the only ones that are going to be exploiting that particular resource. Yeah. Mm. Are there Olcott sites or I guess people back in the day living in this area, were they also, I would assume, pretty well populated over on the Olympic Peninsula, which is on the other side of Puget Sound? Because I imagine in the early Holocene, you could probably walk there with lower sea levels, right? Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. Uh, a colleague of mine, uh, Roger Kears at Washtot, is currently excavating an Alcott site over on the Elwha River. Um, mm-hmm. They're relocating a bridge on US 101. Uh, they needed to move the bridge after they've torn down the Elwha River Dam about six or seven years ago. Okay. In a big move, you know, tear down dam, let's restore the habitat. Well, uh, the river became a little wild and it started to undercut the footings of the bridge across the Elwha. And so they need to re- Relocate it, and whether they wanted to relocate it, they've found some fairly old pre-contact sites, and they ended up being Alcott in nature. And so, that's an ongoing excavation. I think they they wrapped up in July uh, of this year, and have a very robust collection of of cores and flakes and blades and points, uh, very similar to to what we have at Granite Falls. So, mm-hmm. so yes, the Olympic Peninsula has the Alcott. So, I mean, you can find it. It's ubiquitous. Yeah, kind of the early. If if you're going to be doing archaeology here in Western Washington, and you're and you're in that time period, you're going to be able to find that right that site. It's not a hard site to to miss. You know, it's it's kind of like your basic lithic scatter in the Great Basin. You know, mm-hmm. which is a fairly mm-hmm. common or a pot drop. You put a hole in the ground in Sonomish <laughs> County, you're going to probably find a a flake or two from from this time period. Nice, cool. nice. Well, that kind of leads me to another question, but I, I wanted to mention first a, a word of caution to anyone digging out there in that site that you just mentioned. There's a lot of vampires out there. So, you know, a 101 <laughs> Olympic Peninsula, just oh my God. vampires and werewolves, man. <laughs> I saw the movie. So anyway. Nice, nice, nice tween reference here. Wow. <laughs> yeah, like, like, but like a 15-year-old one. <laughs> <laughs> no, anyway, I'm, I am glad you brought that up because it's interesting to me uh, – with the nature of these sites and the soils and, you know, you, the inability to find a lot of stuff, like you mentioned, the, the, you know, the, the paucity of organic material that was found in the Granite Falls site, I'm sure that translates to pretty much everywhere in this area, especially like the Olympic Peninsula. It's practically a rainforest now. You know, there's nothing can survive over there. So what's left with Olcott research? What, what would be the smoking gun, so to speak? Or is it really just adding to the data set at this point and the density, you know, determining like population densities, like, oh, we've got, you know, if we found 800 more sites, you know, we would know this much more about them, that kind of thing. Or is there really stuff that you think that we can find that would let us know more about them? Yeah, it's, it's more of the same. And, and it's more of the, you know, as as the science evolves and we're able to extract more information from the stone tools, doing, you know, a blood residue analysis or doing mm, yeah. analysis of, you know, of the, the fire modified rocks like we were talking about earlier. Sure. 
sure. kind of trying to you know figure out the the greasy residue of whatever they were processing on those fires. Those are evolving, and that's something that's happening on the the Elwater Ridge site right now. Is you know they they have some scrappy possible features that they're looking at, and they're they're using our Granite Falls data as as a basis and trying to trying to make those parallels to uh, as best they can. And when it comes to when you, when you're doing you know archaeology here in Western Washington, the more complex later sites, you know, you move into the 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 wet sites, the you know the the inundated sites, kind of on the south end of Salish Sea down by Olympia. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dale Crows has been working on those, and that's where you get the the netting and the basketry, you know, oh, and, sure. and these are components of the cultures that were for sure also back 5,000, 7,500 years, sure. 8,000 years ago. You just don't see, so you can extrapolate to a certain degree. It's like, yeah, these guys were able to manipulate the trees and use the bark for for X, Y, and Z as part of their kind of material cultural collection. We just we just don't have that, and so yeah. maybe you can get lucky and find a site that has preservation, whether it's in a cave setting or it was inundated. It's been like in a bog, for example, in mm-hmm. Snohomish County, where we might find a site that was flooded, and we have that you know kind of Pompeii or or Ozette. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with the Ozette site on the Washington coast, which mm-hmm. is a seven hundred year old landslide that buried a village out there on the coast and it, and it you know everything the entire oh. you know village was sealed in and wow. everything was preserved and it's a kind That's of a, cool. the amazing type site for the late ethnographic period kind of mm-hmm. the early ethnographic period 700 years ago that's still before contact with uh, settlers and euro-americans but it's still on the cusp it was yeah. you know mm-hmm. obviously the things that they were doing 700 years ago were pretty much what they were doing in For the sure. 17th and 18th century right, as well right Nice, nice. That's cool. I never heard of that before. That's neat, though. Do you think that there's a good chance of finding a site with that kind of preservation, or is it just like so unlikely? Yeah, I mean, it would have to be in, you know, kind of in the modern context on the western side of the Cascades in a reservoir situation. So, you know, maybe where we've dammed mm. and a site for the last 100 years or 75 years has been kind of protected, managed from a federal or a state level that have kept people out. So you don't have a lot of, you know, pot hunters or folks going in mm. and, and illegally digging the site. That's always a problem. There's a big issue now with, with kind of local collectors that are going in up the watersheds and being quite brazen about it on Facebook, you kind of, you know, going after historic stuff. I mean, they're, they're, wow. it, not necessarily pre-contact, but the mm-hmm. historic period is is, is ripe with mm-hmm. with issues these days. But that's 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 another podcast. That's another, <laughs> another, another topic. Pot hunters um, are always another topic. Yeah. But no, I mean, it's it, it would have to be kind of a unicorn site. Yeah. And so, I mean, I would... You know, there's not a, a ton of caves in the kind of Western Washington zone, so it would have to be a a terrace site that was c- covered up in a landslide or saturated in in some sort of you know kind of high water event. Mm. Kind of just a more general question, not necessarily Olcott related, but you know Puget Sound is a massive area with a lot of inlets and fingers and all that stuff, and but as I mentioned earlier, a lot of that was exposed because sea levels were much lower when the ice sheets were still quite there. Like you look, you look on one side and he's like, oh, we're at the mountains. You look behind you. It was like, yeah, that glacier's still there. So, <laughs> you know, back in those days, I'm sure there's a ton of really early sites that are underwater right now. And I'm wondering, is there much research being done up here for underwater archaeology to try to identify? So I know on California coast, they're doing that quite a bit, but I'm wondering out here, is that being done? Yeah, to a degree. Yeah, There's been more research, say, on the Oregon coast that I'm more familiar with mm-hmm. and kind of focusing in on mm-hmm. on the kind of the Pacific coast shelf sure. and, you know, the minus 300 feet, you know, that the water was at, at you know, kind of post at the late glacial maximum yeah. and retreat. And so, you know, a combination of, of sea retreat and, and land rebound, right? Mm-hmm. So you have different elevations at different times where what's habitable, which, which was inundated. That's definitely a, it's a question that you're still dealing with when you're looking at, at the Salish Sea site morphology and site development. So that's, that's, that's a big question. And primarily here, you know, the, the biggest clue are the shell middens. So you, you get, you know, these, you know, long-term sites that are occupied and you have meters and feet of shell refuse deposits which are indicative of Native American use and habitation along mm-hmm. the shoreline. And sometimes those 
can be a hundred feet elevated upon the on a terrace. Oh, and sure. so that's okay. That that was beach, but now it's not. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so it, you know, it comes down to to having a geomorphologist on your project to really kind of help mm-hmm. you know suss this out. Just like, well, where was this? Is this beach? Was this beach? And now it's now it's upland. Yeah. And so trying to figure out that is part of the problem around here. I think in the last minute here, that's what I want to end with. You mentioned geomorphologist. I don't think people realize how much in 2020, 2021, 20, 2008 when we did this project, I mean, the last 20 years, how archaeologists and other disciplines rely on each other. So what other experts or disciplines or, you know, samples did you send out? Like, who did you engage on this project? Well, I mean, in addition to analyzing the raw material for the stones, kind of doing the, the, the petrograph analysis, kind of mm-hmm. poking a hole in the stone and, and seeing where it came from, in addition to doing kind of the, the residue analysis on the stone, we sent off the the obsidian that we did recover. We recovered a couple of pieces sure. off to, you know, obsidian hydration. And we did the paleoecological study where we cored the bog mm-hmm. and then we analyzed the paleofauna, you know, the, the paleopollen that was there, you know, the, which gave us kind of the whole pamphlet set of, of vegetation that was present at the time that these sites were occupied and kind sure. of seeing the, the, the cycle of fire and regeneration, fire regeneration, which kind of, you know, very applicable to today's situations with fires burning in areas where they haven't for, for, for decades. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, and then, and then obviously kind of looking at the, what, what really helped us quite a bit was the use of publicly available LIDAR. Yeah. So mm-hmm. kind of the, the bare earth images kind of stripping the, the last 150 years of, of human intervention to see the, the lay of the land and where these sites fall, helping us to predict where other sites are going to be mm-hmm. based on similar landforms. Yeah, I thought that was really neat. I saw that the image in the report. I was looking at that because you can really see like how the sites like follow the edges of these terraces. It was that was cool. Yeah. All right. Well, speaking of the report, the book is called Hunters of the Mid Holocene Forest, and it's by James Chatters and Jason Cooper and Philip Letourneau. And you can find it at University of Utah Anthropological Papers, and we will link to this. I'll try to find that link. I'm sure it's on their website. It is. We will link to this in the show notes, so open up your podcast player right now. Go click on that and check it out. A lot of really cool things in here, a lot of really cool descriptive descriptive pictures. You know, if you're reading a book like this and you're not an archaeologist, I would say go to the introduction and results sections of each chapter, <laughs> and then you'll get a pretty good idea. If you really want to geek out on it, that stuff's in there too. So, And the good thing, uh, Utah Press has put all the appendices up and available for free. Oh wow. So oh, all cool. the all of our tables for lithics and a fire modified rock, they're there mm-hmm. and you can access those without having to buy buy the book. So that's nice. available. Nice. Outstanding. And you can comb the excavation pictures and see if you see me or Chris in there. <laughs> if you know what we look like. There you go. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Or this is a podcast. I know. Face for radio. <laughs> all right. So all right. So this was really great. Jason, thanks for coming up. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this has been really awesome. And I hope we can get you on an episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast at some point in the future to really talk about the you know the interaction and the agency side and how this all came together. Thank you, Chris. So. Thank you, Rachel. And definitely go check out the Association for Washington Archaeology yeah. website and take a, a perusal of our latest journal. And yeah, hit me up if you have any questions. Yep, we'll link to that too. Definitely. All right. Thanks, guys. And we'll see you next week. Adios. Is that, is that good? one is that is it adios he keeps getting on me because i change my sign off every time because i can't decide on one that i like (laughs) thanks for listening to the archaeology show feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.arcpodnet.com find us on facebook instagram and twitter at arcpodnet music for this show is called i wish you would look from the band sea hero again Thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.